0: Hello, I'm Tim Marlowe, Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts, and this event was part of the Festival of Ideas, an inspiring lineup of talks and debates with innovators from across the arts, brought to you from the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, my name is John Wilson. Welcome to the Festival of Ideas. Uh, this is a great. Uh... Pleasure to be here as part of this festival. Uh, this is Richard as well here. Uh, uh, just to explain, Richard uh, will be signing this whole occasion. And um, and sorry, I just need to. I <laughs> basically need to introduce Tamara, who is one of the greatest dancers of her generation. Somebody who has always brought grace and beauty and passion and power to the ballet stage. Um, she's now passing on those attributes to the next generation of dancers at the English National Ballet where she has been artistic director for six years now. Um, I've interviewed Tamara several times and I can tell you that she talks as she dances with great passion and intelligence. So without further ado, please welcome our special guest, the brilliant Tamara Rojo. maybe just we start with a word about that passion I talked about the passion with which you dance and you've never hidden from that you've always embraced it I think in the past you've said you channel your passion your energy and sometimes your anger and that desire for revenge I mean that's really interesting (laughs) given that ballet is so much about poise and control as well isn't it Um,
1: I've I've never considered ballet to be about poise and control (laughs) Um, you obviously need to be skillful, so you need to have control of your body as a tool um, and control of your technique as your language. Um, but for me, it was always about emotion. It was always about communicating emotion to the audience and telling a story.
0: Uh, well, let's, before we talk, let's see you in action. We have a, a, a clip of Tamara dancing uh, with the English National Ballet, and this is Giselle, which was. Uh, Choreographed by Akram Khan, a brand new ballet. In fact, we'll talk about this during our discussion. But let's just have a look at uh, Tamara in action. Saw that production, which you oh, said, "Well, no, it was absolutely <laughs> fabulous."
1: can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> is
0: it interesting? When you do, you do, how often do you watch yourself in that way? Do you Never. look at the performances? I mean, <laughs> as little a, as possible. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <It's> agony. <laughs> I mean, that's the interesting thing: is that you are. You, it's all about live performance. It's about creating something in that moment, and it takes. Years obviously of practice, and then kind of months of rehearsal and honing those moves, and then you give what two or three or weeks worth of performances, and then you move on again to the next thing. So you, you very rarely see yourself.
1: Yeah, and in I, that I, way. I do try to avoid it as much as I can because <laughs> in my head I am much better. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> better than that?
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's. Um, uh, I think part of that passion that you were talking about is the need to escape. I think most artists that I know and I admire share one thing that I share with them and it is this need to escape reality, to, um, to de- dilute yourself in someone else's life and someone else's roles. And so when you see yourself, it, it suddenly becomes you and, and it's never what you were feeling so In that
0: moment. So when you are dancing, I was going to move on to this later. Actually, the other thing I was going to say, I took, totally lost when I was introducing Richard. And I was actually kind of watching Richard describe my words. Uh, what I was going to say was, uh, there'll be time for questions at the end, probably we'll have about 15 or 20 minutes, so if you want to ask questions of tomorrow, uh, have a think. But we're going to try and cover as much ground as possible. What I was going to come on to say later, but I think it's really important now, given that we're talking about watching yourself and that idea of... Escape. Do you lose yourself in the moment when you're on stage? Are you how aware of, of where you are and who's there and what you're doing, are you? Or is it, does it just happen?
1: It depends. The, the roles that are technically very demanding don't quite allow you to lose yourself as much. So you have, like, one part of the brain that is keeping task. You know, yeah. it's like sending you information about, you know, pick it this way and turn that way and spot there and da-da-da-da-da. Um, but when you when you've done a role a lot, even if it's technically demanding, or if there's a kind of a different type of role that is more dramatic and you feel confident in all of the technical demands, then you can lose yourself. And those are the best shows, those are the special shows when when you really can't remember what happened. You know at some point you stepped on the stage and suddenly you wake up and people are clapping and you aren't quite sure what happened in between and then and then afterwards, you sometimes go for dinner, and you're still lost. Mm. You're still trying to remember, or, or images come back, and, and you know. And your mom goes, "You okay?" <laughs> 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 and kind of, and you're kind of trying to come back. Um,
0: you're actually in a different world psychologically. I mean, you, sort of, you do lose yourself in the y- dance.
1: Yeah, I certainly try to, and I always find that those are the shows that count. Um, the shows where you were truly that role, you were truly that person, and there was no ego left.
0: You've said before, I read this this quote, in fact, we've even talked about it, I think, before, the feeling of being on stage, the euphoria, and I guess it's that rush of endorphins or whatever else that's pumping the adrenaline and everything. You said it's like taking drugs, it's like you can't... It's, it's almost like being on heroin or what you imagine that to be like.
1: <laughs> not that I've experienced that. Eh? <laughs> Disclosure moment. But what do you mean? <laughs> I did not inhale, you know. <laughs> uh, what do I, in- is it, I... I do think it, it must be something like that because you are seeking it all the time and, and, you, and you are willing to prepare so much and work so hard just for that little time um, yeah. that is special. And so many shows... Don't give that. Like, I remember David Wall um, uh, saying once that he can't count with his two hands those shows. So it's not that every show feels like that. There's very few shows where you just have that complete feeling of power and control and joy Mm -hmm. and madness. And... um, but they are very, very few, and, and once you feel it once, then every other show, and every rehearsal, and every class, and every gym hour is just on the pursuit of that feeling.
0: At oh, what age did you suddenly realize that you could dance? In fact, what, was the, what, what led you to ballet in the first place?
1: It's kind of a strange thing, because I was, I was in school yard. Madrid? Madrid, and my mom and my dad work, And um, neither could pick me up uh, at the end of the school day. So they put me into, you know, everything else, like swimming and French and whatever, everything, everything, just to feel hours until they could come and pick me up, Um, except ballet, Um, because my dad did not like ballet, and he did not think that was the right profession.
0: Your dad was a communist, wasn't
1: he? Yes. Uh, Well, he will be more specific than that. He was an an anarcho Anarcho, uh, a Re- Republican anarchist, something like that. I can't, I can't right. remember. Okay. But he would be very specific. Uh, he's no longer. <laughs> um, so um, one day it was raining, and I was waiting for my mom, who was running late. Um, and I was in the schoolyard, and it was cold. And then this beautiful woman came to me. It was a nun's school. so. Old man's. and then suddenly there was this beautiful woman, and she said, "Why don't you come into the gym because it will be warmer? We're doing ballet." And I went, "Okay." So I came in, and then suddenly I just saw this world that I was never seen before, with piano music, and everything was so amazing. So when my mom came, I said to her, "I, I want to do ballet. You know, you need me to put me in ballet." So we went home, and she she told my dad, and he was like, "No." So I cried every day for six months, every day, until they put me in ballet. But I had never seen ballet, so I thought that being... And I started to say, I'm going to be a ballerina. Um, But I thought being a ballerina was doing ballet class until you were old enough to be the ballet teacher. That was it.
0: So it was this woman that you Yeah, that's that you all aspired I wanted to, to. exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Which was really sweet because then I lost contact with her and then I found her again, Lola Grande. She was just the most beautiful woman and she Lola smelled Lola Grande. She smelled amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that about her, Lola Grande. Um, really sweet lady. Um, but she was the first one to tell me eventually I had to move on to a more professional vocational school. But so I did like a year of ballet and then my mom said, well, I'm gonna bring you to see ballet to watch Swan Lake. And I saw it and I hated it. I was like, but I don't wanna make a show of it. This is all about being lost in this world of intimate inner search. It was something, I mean, I, I guess I I'm, I was quite shy and I didn't know. Enjoy school, and, and so I love that quietness and just the piano music and the ability to just find yourself or mm. lose yourself in mm. it. Um, so I thought, no, ballet's not for me. Like,
0: because you would be on show? Yes. You just didn't want. To I
1: thought be... that was like, yeah, well, I mean, that, that was amoral. Like, <laughs> showing that publicly was wrong, in my opinion. Uh, um, but I just love class so much. Um,
0: but were you good right from the outset? Was Did Lola Grande, did she see something in you? Is that why she said you have to move to another class?
1: I don't know what she saw, because I was not good.
0: Like, really?
1: I had very good insteps, yeah. like natural insteps. And that's quite rare, and I think that's all I had. Because I was really stiff. I was coordinated a musical. So I was coordinated and musical, and I had good insteps. So that's okay but I was not flexible, I, I didn't have a nice like, jump. I didn't, there was lots of things that were not there. Um, but I don't know, I guess what she saw was that I truly loved it, that I really was in it.
0: At what point did you think, I could do this, though? I mean, if you thought at that point you weren't anything special, there must have been a moment where you just, the, the, you know, the world opened and the possibility that you could actually become a really good ballet dancer.
1: It was, um, I think I was 14, and um, there was a national competition in Valencia, and our teachers sent basically like 15 of us to just massacre the competition, just the whole, you know, the best of the school, go there and just teach everyone what is the best school in Spain, right? And we did land there, um, and I was not one of his favorites, so I thought, I'm just part of the crowd, I'm just making numbers, And then we arrived, and I passed the first eliminatory, and then I passed the second, and then I was in the final. It was just six of us, and then I won. And I was in shock. I was like, this cannot be happening. Um, And funnily enough, in the jury, there was someone from the Royal Academy, the British Royal Academy of Dance. Um, And they, they said that I should move to England, and they will give me a scholarship for the Royal Ballet, or... And it was too early for me. Um, but that was the first time when I went, okay, I, I do have a future, I, I, I can't do this.
0: And you must have always been very driven because de- ballet demands commitment.
1: Yeah.
0: Even, I guess, at a young age, it hurts. I mean, you have to really push yourself through the pain barrier. And it takes so much effort and so much practice. Um, and then you came to Britain, didn't you? I mean, you start off with the Scottish National yeah. Ballet originally. Yeah. Um, and then the Royal Ballet, you were there for, for a very long time, and you've worked your way through the ranks. I must just tell a story, actually. I remember when you took on the job as, in fact, when it, the day Tamara was announced as Artistic Director of the English National Ballet, and this was April 2012, and I remember and I present Front Row on Radio 4, we had a morning meeting, and I said, Tamara Rock has just been announced as the director, let's see if we, she can come on. And I was, you know, everybody said, they never come on and talk. She'll be in the job. She's not, you know, she's not in the job for another six months and there'll probably be another year. They always like to play it safe. They made a phone call to the English National Ballet. They said, she'll be there live at 7.15 tonight. <laughs> you remember you came in? Yeah. So you've always been somebody who is very self-confident as well. That must, have, that must have been, even though you thought you were shy, there must have been something right from the early age that, that, you, that you knew you could do things well.
1: I don't think so. Um, I genuinely have never felt like that. Um, um, Most of the time, I I thought I was lucky. Um, I was in the right place at the right time. Um, So, no, I I mean, something like that, what what I do have is an incredible sense of duty. I do feel duty very... uh, So, if if someone is going to put something like the English National Ballet um, in my hands, it is therefore my duty to go to today's programme, <laughs> you know, and be here.
0: But I tell you, that's, that's very unusual. Um, you know, you normally have to go through ranks of PR, you know, public relations people and the communications team and this. No, she's not ready to talk about it yet. She doesn't know anything about it. But, you know, you're quite happy because you're very passionate about dance and about the industry and not just about your own career, yeah. about the welfare of other dancers. And
1: I find it easier when I'm talking about something other than myself. Right. I do find it easier when I'm talking about the company or a vision or the creative industries or the arts in general. I, I, I find that very easy to defend and fight for.
0: It is, I mean, as I've said, it's very much about pain as well because, I mean, more than any other art form, uh, it's about athleticism. I mean, it's, it's not just about uh, the imagination, which you have to have as well. It's about the training. It has to be absolutely rigorous. And do you have the same routine now? You're still dancing even though you're leading the company. You're still dancing. Has the routine changed over the years?
1: It has. I mean, I don't have the time that I had and I don't do the roles that I used to do. Um, I still get up early and I have an hour in the gym with the physical trainer and then I do class with the company and then maybe I do one hour or two of rehearsal and then it's finished. Uh, when uh, when I was a dancer, I would do between six and eight hours a day of training. Um, so it's much less. And I think I was able to do that because of when it happened in my career, mm. that I didn't feel like I had still things to prove. I didn't feel like I had things that I desperately wanted to do. I felt that, like I said, I had been very lucky. I had a really, really... Um, beautiful career, and, and really privileged career. I'd done so many things I never thought I would do. Um, but then I was okay taking a step back in what it was my personal dancing career. And also I felt as well that I could, those things that I had done enough, I could just enjoy them now. I didn't have to prove anything. I, you know, if The people that came to see me knew what they were coming to see by now. Um, so. So in a way, I was, I was able to, to, to do it in this, in this way that is, is less demanding.
0: And the pain, I mean, it must be awful. You have danced through the pain. There's a very famous story of when you went on. I think it was the Royal Ballet Dancing Giselle, a previous Giselle. Um, and you already had a, a, a ruptured tendon or you mm-hmm. tore a ligament and you danced on through that.
1: The Royal Ballet Cold. You know? <laughs> like, I'm not gonna say, "Oh, I just happened to have ruptured my ligament. I can't do it." <laughs> I'm like, yeah, of course, I'll be there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's what you do. Um, but I don't. I don't like talking about pain in relation to ballet because it is not a requisite. It's, mm. it, you know, if you are in pain, you need to stop <laughs> and you need to take care of yourself. Um, so, and there is the normal pain that anyone that's going to run a marathon is gonna go through as well. So it's the normal physical pain of training. Um, but anything further than that, it's just not the right way forward. Um, and I do find it quite boring where dancers go on and on about you know, oh, how hard this is, how painful it is. and like, Well, it's a choice. It is a choice, it's your choice. Yeah. Um,
0: and do you still love it? I mean, is, is it that part of the joy when that first time when you're in that room in Madrid as a kid and, and it's about losing yourself, going into a different world, do you still get that, that sense of joy?
1: It's much harder. Like, now when I'm in class, my brain, is half my brain is doing tasks, like, did I send that email, did I call so-and-so, you know? So it's much harder now to lose myself in it. It's still sometimes, like when I dance, Akram Cicero, Dust, or... That I am able once I'm on the stage to really lose myself. But even in a rehearsal, I'm rehearsing. I'm also checking the lights. I'm checking that the choreographer is happy. I'm checking that the crew are having you know their breaks there. So it's much harder now to be able to lose myself in the experience of dancing.
0: And what about the come down after? I mean, you said earlier you can be in a restaurant and you're still kind of half your mind is still there on the stage. Is it? Does it take a few hours to, after you come off stage just to decompress?
1: Not so much either, because most of the time then I have to get changed and go front of house and say thank you to the sponsors and make a speech. and you have So I do need to have a bit of a disciplined mind and come back to reality. Um, uh, so, yeah, I'm, and, you know, I am aware. I'm, I'm of a certain age. Uh, it's, it's coming to an end. So that also gives it a different angle.
0: I mean, that is really interesting, isn't it? Because unlike any other art form as a writer as a painter as a musician you can go on and on and on and very often you're doing your best work Mm. in your later years as a dancer you know right from the moment your career begins that it has you're you're living in borrowed on borrowed time in a way yeah Um, and you say you're at a certain age you know now that i mean you're you're heading towards that final dance yeah and is it something you just don't like to think about? Or have you? Have you, are, you are you already sort of planning where that, when that might be?
1: I think it's something that every dancer thinks about every day. Literally every day. Um, every day you're thinking, I, I need to do this because I might not do it next. Or I, need, um, it, I think it is a tragedy. There's no other way of putting it. It is a tragedy because, as you say, as you become intellectually and emotionally... More mature and at your best, mm. your body can't deliver that anymore. Um, so you have, you still have choices. I mean, some dancers go on for longer. They're physically more gifted. Uh, They're luckier with injuries. Um, they choose other choreographies or the things to do uh, that might not be so physically demanding. Um, so there are ways of going on. It's just not for me. Like I, the standard that I, I. I want to give um, on the stage of myself won't allow that from me. Um,
0: you I won't have- go on longer than you, th- you... You don't want the quality to diminish. I mean, you want to go out at the top, is that what you're saying?
1: Yes. I, 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 dis- I feel that I, I owe it to the audience mm. um, to give them my best. And when I'm realising I cannot give you my best... Or there are other dancers that can do it better, then there's no, no point.
0: And you must, you say, all dancers know that right from the start. All dancers live with that. Uh, I mean, the last few years I've done interviews with other dancers about that moment. Actually, at the moment of retirement, recently I talked to Akram. Yeah. Akram Khan was about to do his preparing for his last dance in a way and he you know he said it's such a huge emotional decision same with Sylvie Guillem who I talked to and Carlos Acosta who of course you've spent so much of the time on stage with yeah. and Carlos preparing and now of course he's going on to other things with that company so you have to have something else you have to take all that experience and that passion and that love that you have for dance and then pass it on yeah. or else it would be as you say there just a, almost a tragic loss
1: and it is. I mean, that's the thing, like, however ready you are. And I'm, again, very lucky because it is my choice. I am able to make it my choice. Most dancers don't have that. Yeah. Most dancers either have an injury, that is the end, or someone else makes the choice for them. So, again, I am incredibly privileged. Um, but still, it, it, nevertheless, I have no memory of myself where I am not an answer. So that makes me sometimes wonder, who am I when I am not a dancer? What am I if I am not a dancer? Who is Tamara if that part of my being and my life is no longer there? And again, part of a way, again, another very lucky thing is that I have a passion for directing and have a passion for putting choreographers and designers together to, of curating programs. I have a passion of developing artists, of being in the studio and rehearsing them. Um, so hopefully that passion balances the other passion. But nevertheless, um, it is a midlife crisis. That's what it is.
0: It feels like that. It is. Really?
1: <laughs> it, it is, it's right in your midlife yeah. when suddenly what you are, you no longer are. You look at yourself in the mirror and there's another person there. And you're like, okay, and who is this person? (laughs) What does it mean to be me? Um, What do I stand for? And obviously there are things in your life that gives you that, you know, There's, there's your moral code and your family and your friends and lots of things that will answer some of those questions, but a big chunk of what you are and what you stand for has been ballet
0: and you're going to lose that that element of your life so have you planned it do you know when you'll finish or are you now listening kind of to your body
1: I am listening uh, to my body it's coming fast um, because in a way it's it's a spiral Um, as you stop doing certain things that are very demanding your body um, kind of disintegrates faster mm. so it loses fitness it loses uh, technical ability and the ability precision. to recover from injury exactly wow. so so once you start reducing the workload you you do you do go down faster
0: well um, you do, you started reducing the workload on stage as soon as you took on the job as yeah. as artistic director. I mean, well, that was one of the things that we talked about. I remember that night I said, you will have to spend more time in meetings, in administration, yeah. in public relations, all of those things, which means less time in the rehearsal studio. Yeah. And you were aware of that from that moment. So that, you, that was always the trade-off. You knew that was going to be the case.
1: Yeah. And, yeah. But uh, as I said, I found another passion. Mm. I mean, English National Ballet really <laughs> is a passion for me and the company and what it means. And also... The people, so um, yeah, so it's worth it.
0: And I mean, do you have a date in mind? Do you know? Do you know? Is there a retirement that is?
1: I don't have a date, and when I do it, I'll do it quietly.
0: Really? So it's not going to be leading up to <laughs> no. the last dance. There
1: won't be. No, <laughs> there won't be a, a last show. Or no. so you
0: just one day you'll just say, by the way, I'm not going to dance again.
1: One day I will publish casting for the next season, and I won't be. And there. you won't be part of it. <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> Do you, given that it is all consuming the way that you talk about it, and you start, uh, you know, you say this is your life, and when you stop dancing, that's that part of your life that's gone. Do you dream about dancing? Are you on stage in your dreams?
1: Not anymore. I think when you're younger, um, when you're in the school, you do dream about repeating things and things that either go wrong or that go amazingly right. Like everybody has the dream where you turn and turn and turn and turn, and, turn and it seems like. Never ending, or you jump and you're floating on the air, or things like that. You dream, and then you also dream about being on the stage and you don't know what the ballet is. And you look around and people are dancing, and no one has told you the role or the choreography. (laughs) And you're like, hi, (laughs) trying to improvise, pretend that you know what's happening. That's the most terrifying of dreams.
0: Wow. (laughs) And when you took over at the um at the English National Ballet. I mean, you said right from the outset you wanted to change things. You wanted to be quite radical. One of the things you wanted to do was bring in, you know, a better female perspective to the whole thing. I mean, there are so many, you know, in a way it is a kind of female-dominated art form because of the number of ballerinas on stage. But in terms of the choreography and the vision, that's often a sort of... It has been a patriarchy, hasn't it, throughout the history of ballet. Have you managed to do that, do you think? Have you brought in... uh, Is that still part of the plan to introduce more female choreographers?
1: I mean, it hasn't been always um, so led by men. Mm. Ballet has gone through times, and there was a time where the role of the ballerina was incredibly powerful. I mean, you read things that... Petipat wrote about Chensinskaya, and you can see who had the power there, you yeah. know, it was definitely her. Yeah. Um, so you, you do see the, the shifting of power depending on whether we value the choreography or we value the dancer yeah. um, shifting. And also, there were great choreographers like Marta Graham and uh, uh, Nijinska, you know, at certain periods of, of our time. Um, what I did feel is that in the 20-something years of my career, I had never been in a ballet commissioned from a woman on the stage. I had never danced a piece created by a woman. And I didn't think that was right. It was, I didn't think it was normal. Mm. Um, So as an artistic director, I had the opportunity to give that platform to women. And so I commissioned She Said, um, where I commissioned um, uh, three choreographers, uh, Ashur Barton, Annabelle Lopez-Ochoa, and Yavin Wan. And then this year we're doing She Persisted, where we present uh, Pina Bausch, a new choreography by Stina Quagiover as well. But not only at at that level, but at every level of the company, we've worked with female choreographers. So in the last six years, we've worked with 25 female choreographers, and we presented 28 new creations. Um, And I think that has helped. But what has helped even more is that people listened. So it's not just me now. It's it's almost every ballet company now commissioning women. Um,
0: But also the the type of work which is seen on the stage. I mean, Giselle, that we saw the clip from at the beginning, I mean, that marks a radical change in in the policy, on the artistic policy at the English National Ballet. The first time, the first new version of Giselle contemporary which changed the story in a way and the context I mean it was setting it in a sort of very 21st century context and telling a story of migration yeah and a sort of global crisis and that was again how did that come about was that with Akram did you talk about that together and wanted to tell this very contemporary story
1: Yes, I mean, the process with Akram is incredibly collaborative. I mean, you literally spend a year just talking and researching and meeting with the whole creative team and sharing your ideas about what it means. What, what does Giselle mean? What are the intrinsic parts that if we remove, is no longer Giselle? Yeah. Um, and then from there, what is the context? Um, if Giselle at that time was in that idyllic world... Where is, where is Giselle today? You know who who is Giselle today? And so you spend a whole yeah a whole year just talking about that, about the context of it, about the meaning of it, about every character. Who is that person? Um, and then and then you st- you step into the studio, and then you start to put flesh on the bones. Um, and what led me to that, and why I commissioned him to do Giselle, was because I feel that in the ballet world we're incredibly protective of our heritage. And that is because it's a very fragile art form and it's done with the best of intention because most of the time things were not written down. We have a very small heritage if you compare with classical music or theater. We have very few classics Mm. and they've been passed on word to mouth. So the generation before wants to protect it by keeping it exactly as they did it or they saw it. And that sometimes stifles it. Yeah. Um, and so what I wanted to say is, if they are truly classics, they should be able to sustain that kind of analysis. They should be able to survive a proper um, a, a, a proper investigation to see what is it that makes them a classic. And that doesn't mean that we lose the other idyllic version. We did both of them in the same season. Um, but I wanted to show that we shouldn't be scared of doing that
0: work. And do you think you have to do that work and change and tell stories about today because ballet has a duty to do that, or else you know, ballet will become irrelevant? I
1: think it is very important. If we want to bring more audiences and new mm. generations to care as much as those people that already care, that we do that.
0: But it's also about the dancers as well. I mean, I was I had a moment when you were rehearsing Giselle and I came down to the to the studio and watching Akram Choreographing, are you there at the centre of the action? But what I felt was the dancers as well. The whole company seemed incredibly energised. And just listening to some of the talk, some of the chat in the in the you know outside the dressing rooms and in the corridors, people felt it seemed like the dancers. Now I don't see a lot of ballet rehearsals, so maybe you know that's the sort of thing the buzz that you get normally. But it seemed to me like they knew this was something new and exciting that they were taking part in.
1: Yes, and again, because also the process is very inclusive of the dancers themselves, of their opinion and their voices, and that's not usually the process. When you do a classical ballet, you're usually told how you should do it. You're usually told exactly where your head should be, where your arms should be, what you should be thinking even sometimes. And um, and don't get me wrong, like, dancers want to do classical ballet. They want to prove themselves in those classical roles. There is definitely a a reason and a decision um, and and a justification to continue to do those roles, both from the artistic point of a dancer, but also from the audience. Um, But it is also incredibly energizing and refreshing when you are asked your opinion, when you are given this role and you say, so how do you think, they should touch.
0: So there was a, the, those individual dancers were encouraged to bring their own interpretation of the roles that were, yeah.
1: and to also create material. Like there were sometimes where Akram would say, "Okay, go downstairs and do some of the duet," and between us we were like, "So she comes this way and then we do this, or what about this?" And then we will present it to him, and he'll completely, you know, completely destroy it. <laughs> <laughs> and change it into something completely different. But it didn't matter because even if he just kept something, you felt that was. That was me, you know, Mm. that that was how I
0: saw it. I guess we also, it's easy to forget that all of the members of the corps de ballet, they are all individual artists and they are all capable of that expression. And and it must be great for them because they're not asked to do that very often. Also, I mean, in that, in Giselle in particular with, with, with Akram, it was bringing the Katak tradition in there as well and fusing that with the classical. So that must be very, again, stimulating for those dancers.
1: Yeah, it's beautiful to learn um, Kata. I mean, I'm not expert at all, um, but he did um, teach us quite a lot of, of the arms and the heads and the eyes and yeah. um, the gestures of it's it. So
0: fabulously expressive, isn't yeah, it? Yeah,
1: and it's such a beautiful
0: art, yeah. yeah. So you still on the stage yeah. for now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and running the company. In the, uh, what? It, so it's six years of, of running the English National Ballet, what have been the biggest challenges
1: well, the first challenge, change, uh, was hard because change is scary, mm. and, and people are afraid of change. Um,
0: and you've had resistance from within that you shouldn't be putting on...
1: Not so much from within. To be honest, the dancers were really looking for it, uh, looking for change, and I had a really um, supportive board. It was more from the outside. The, our audiences that loved the company mm. were obviously protective of it. So, there was some reaction to some of the things I was announcing that I was doing. Um, Also, some reaction from colleagues of the industry, comments that were, you know, when you're just beginning, can really hurt. Um, But I I always took it as because they care, because they really care. Um, So, that was one of the biggest challenges. And the other challenge, which is a normal challenge for any ballet organisation or any artistic organisation, is the funding. It's the constant challenge. It's how to do more with less <laughs> all the time. Mm. Um, because
0: just before you arrived, I think the English National Ballet had had quite a considerable cut. Uh, and you're you're reliant on the sponsors. Yeah. Um, what... In fact, I know the answer to this question, so it was a leading question. You and I talked about this on the Today programme when uh, the Today programme did a special edition about Brexit, about the effect, and we talked about the effect that it might have on the arts. Now, you know, I wanted to talk to leaders of the cultural industries, and I was quite struck how very few people wanted to talk about the possible effect of getting visas and work permits and freedom of movement, and you agreed straight away. You're very passionate about this. What effect do you think will... Brexit have on, particularly on ballet at the moment, and your, your field?
1: I believe that it will be potentially devastating. Um, right now, um, you know, English National Ballet has uh, more than 20 um, nationalities in the company. Many of them are European. All the vocational dance schools are fed consistently by European students that pay their fees. Um, all the other ballet companies, dance companies... Uh, have a large quantity of European dancers, we consistently collaborate and, and bring in uh, freelance freelance designers, freelance wardrobe department, freelance, all kinds of musicians, um, uh, our orchestras are filled with European uh, nationals. Um, our um, business plan and many of, and the smaller the organisation, the more important for them it is. Uh, for their business plan depends on touring patterns, that means that you, sh- you need to be able to go from one country to another um, without having to stop at the border and without having to apply for 100 visas, and without having to pay to transport the goods, um, so that you can go France, Italy, Switzerland, Holland, back to Spain, whatever. Mm. Um, we, all organisations, um, all artistic organisations, are very lean machines. We don't have the capacity to suddenly deal with that level of of visas, with the cost of it, with the cost added to every production of having to transport everything through all of these different countries. Um, So unless we find a solution, it could be incredibly devastating.
0: You think it will? But also, I guess when you were making those over the last couple of years, it was predicated on... uh, the idea, the presumption that there would be a deal before Brexit, a deal with the European Union, therefore you could probably strike deals that would allow, that would give permission for artistic companies, that would uh, circumvent some of the the new regulations that come in. If it's a no-deal Brexit, that could be even more difficult then in terms of freedom of movement.
1: And funding. I mean, so many dance organisations receive European funding. And, you know, they depend on it. And co-production. Um, we share the risk of new productions with European theaters, um, with European ballet companies. Uh, um, I mean, freelancers. Uh, how often do you hear that a dancer comes in just for one show, a musician goes to play somewhere in Holland? Um, I, I just and and um, and I know, for example, the creative industries have been loving very hard for a special. Visa mm. an easier visa, but even if that comes to friction, the terms of that still take out the whole of my corps de ballet, because you have to have a minimum income of thirty thousand pounds a year. So that's it; none of my corps de ballet are in that. Um, and then you have to have a, a contract. So anyone that just wants to come and do freelance will have a very difficult, or not impossible. Uh, uh, opportunity of coming into the United Kingdom.
0: So these are the specific problems that you foresee will be faced by the English National Ballet and all of the dance companies, but also as an active member and you know, you are very vocal about the arts and cultural industry. In fact, you're part of the uh, Federation of Creative Industries, Creative Industries Federation on the board there. Um, So this is gonna be a problem that you think will face not just ballet companies, but arts institutions, museums, orchestras.
1: Universities, vocational schools. Yeah, everything that is creative, everything that needs the the free movement of people to be able to create something together.
0: Um, yeah. Your colleagues, other creative leaders of the creative industries, must share these concerns. Do you think it's time for people to to be more vocal uh, and to warn what will happen?
1: I can only speak for myself. I, as I said, I as um, I am the. Um, take the carer of this institution for now. Um, it's not my institution. It was, um, it was loaned to me. It has a history before me and it will have a history after me. And my duty is to ensure that it does. So I, ha- I take that as a very big responsibility. Mm. And I find that for that to happen, I need to say these things. And I need... Um, to warn and hopefully affect those that make decisions. Um, Each person has to find their own duties.
0: Mm. And I guess professionally and personally, you have an international outlook. In fact, you were born in Canada, weren't you? You happened to be born in Canada because your parents were there and they grew up in Madrid. And you've lived and worked in. in, Do you feel? Do you feel Spanish still? Are you sort of? Do you regard yourself as a Londoner now? I'm a Londoner. First and
1: foremost. Yes, definitely. I am a Londoner. I mean, um, I mean, it's strange because once you you're an immigrant, you're an immigrant. But in a way, I've always been an immigrant because even when I was growing up in Spain, I had been born in Canada. I spoke French, Um, so it was yeah. I was an an immigrant from the beginning. uh, but now I've been uh, t- 21 years in London. Yeah. Uh, all my you know, uh, rational uh, time as an adult has happened here. <laughs> so, so yes, I'm definitely...
0: Just Where do you see the English National Ballet in another six years' time? You've done six years now. How do you want to see it change? What quantifiable change will we see by, by another you know, six years?
1: I think one of the most transformational steps that is coming is our new building our new home, we're moving to City Island. Uh, So, right now, we've done all of this with two studios. This is in East London
0: you're moving
1: to? We're moving to East London. At the moment, we are in Kensington, and we only have two studios, neither of which are the size of stage. Mm -hmm. So, we never get to rehearse what we're performing properly. Um, So, when we move, we will have four studios, we'll have the school with us, another three studios. But even more excited, we're going to have a production stage where we'll have um, a stage and a rig and everything that you need to work on all of the aspects of a production, not just the choreography, but the lighting, the designs, um, the music, the orchestra, everything. And that is going to transform not just how we do things, but how the industry, how the ballet world does things, because most of the time, you make a new ballet and you only have one day and a half on the stage before you have to open. And I want to give ballet the level of quality that the Western has. Um, so we'll be able to not only do it for ourselves but share it with other organisations and also share it with, um, with the West End, share it with people that want to do a musical, uh, with orchestras, with operas, so that our home will be the centre of create, of creation for all these performing arts. And the artists of English National Valley will get to talk in the canteen with all these different people, all these different designers, choreographers of musicals, uh, music uh, directors, composers, just everybody. And that's, that, I think, will will transform the company again.
0: Fantastic. I'm really sorry to say, I think we've run out of time. We, we could talk for ages. I know there's <laughs> going to be so many more questions. I'm sorry, we, we are going to have to wrap it up. But Tamara speaks with such insight and intelligence and, and passion. man. I think she really expresses her best on the stage. That's happening next Thursday, the next time you're on stage, lest we forget, at the English National Ballet. It's at Sadler's Wells, isn't it? The English National Ballet. So if you've got tickets for that, lucky you. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And in the meantime, any chance you get to see Tamara dance uh, over the next however many years it will be, then do seize that opportunity. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed for coming and thanks to Tamara Rojo. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, have a look at what else is coming up in our brand new lecture theatre at roy.ac forward slash what's on.